0: The insurance industry is the greatest industry in the world. So I would tell them that they need to get into the insurance industry. It's one of the financial world's best kept secrets. Um, The beauty of the insurance business is you are the only rate, rate limiting factor to your own success. It's time!
1: I want to connect the listeners to the best of the best welcome to the evolve broker podcast i am your host pat costello the co-founder and principal at evolve mga our mission for the podcast is to bring the insurance industry the best of the best today i have the pleasure of interviewing one of the most dynamic individuals in the insurance industry At 35 years old, Trevor Baldwin is the president and CEO of Baldwin Risk Partners. Baldwin Risk Partners is the first agency in over 15 years to take a piece of their firm public. At the time of their IPO, Insurance Journal noted their valuation at $908 million. They now have more than 800 employees nationwide, over 500,000 clients, and they are on a mission to be one of the top 10 largest insurance agencies in the country. If you want to learn from a trailblazer within the industry, I know you will enjoy this podcast. Trevor and I discussed the motivation to go public and what the process was like, how he approaches the role of a CEO and how he prioritizes high quality company culture at BRP. Without further ado, here's Trevor. Trevor, welcome to the evolved broker podcast.
0: Thanks for having me, Patrick. Looking uh, looking forward to spend some time with you today.
1: Yeah, glad to have you, my man. And let's dive right in. In 2019, you became the first commercial insurance agency in the last 15 years to go public. What was the motivation to go public?
0: You know, we had spent a lot of time um, really thinking about the optimal capital structure for our business and for this industry. And as you're probably well aware, um, the insurance brokers and distribution landscape has become exceedingly popular among third-party investors, whether it's the public markets, private equity, alternative investors. And uh, we wanted to find a capital strategy that accomplished a few things. One, we're building a forever business. And what I mean by that is one, where we're investing for the long term, and for the good and for the best outcomes of all of our stakeholders, not just one stakeholder, whether it be just the shareholders or just the colleague or just the client. Our view is that the ultimate success of our organization and the success of our stakeholders is rooted in being able to deliver fantastic outcomes for our stakeholders collectively. So that that was one consideration. Two was access to capital to be able to fuel and fund our growth strategy of building the very best colleague owned and insurance brokerage and distribution business of the future. So needing significant continued investments in technology and infrastructure and being able to invest in building and cultivating a culture that continues to cement our status as a destination the, the industry's top tier talent. So we we had spent years evaluating a variety of capital structures and had actually evolved our capital structure ourselves. So we started out as a traditional privately held firm. I co-founded the business with my father and two other partners in January of 2011. And at the time, we were about $5 million in revenue with about 35 colleagues. We then, for the first time, took in outside capital in 2016 with a $100 million investment from a family office. And at the time, we had evaluated private equity. We'd looked at some bulge bracket money center banks, but ultimately decided that that family office capital was optimal for us at that phase in our business growth. We were about, call it, $30 million in revenue. because one, the family office was really aligned with our strategy. Two, they didn't know insurance. They didn't want to get involved in it. And so they were very comfortable seeding the uh, both day-to-day and strategic decision-making uh, to us as the, the leaders in the business. And two, the, the structure of the investment enabled us to retain uh, the vast majority of the equity ownership. Then as we continued to grow and as our story and our success continued to grow and it became clear we were going to need more capital to continue fueling the success story that we were having, we began evaluating uh, capital options again and, and got close to bringing more family office capital into the business in early 2019. But ultimately, I made the decision not to do that because it became clear to me that if I took that second round of family office capital, I was starting the clock on when our business ultimately was gonna be for sale. And while it wasn't private equity per se, it was kind of private equity 2.0. And so maybe instead of eight turns of leverage, it was gonna be five. And maybe instead of a three to five year hold period, it was gonna be seven to 10. But the ultimate outcome wasn't gonna change. And that was not in alignment with the commitments I'd been making to our stakeholders, which is we're building a forever business, one where we're gonna make the investments for the long-term, and we're not gonna manage the business based on the short to intermediate term uh, kind of financial desires of one party or or another. Um, And so we began exploring this concept of, of a controlled company, IPO. Um, and ultimately what we were able to do is take the company public, but do so in a manner where we are still majority owned by insiders and, and do so in a manner where we were able to keep control of the decision-making so that we could have a high degree of confidence that we were going to be able to continue to operate the business through a long-term lens rather than focus on short-term outcomes. And so the, the, the ultimate outcome of that is we went public in October of 2019. We were the first broker to commercial broker to do so in over 15 years, and the first to do so in that controlled uh, methodology. And so that left us with a, a fortress balance sheet, unique access, and advantaged access to capital. And that was super important because- Uh, we wanted to build a business and a balance sheet that was going to enable us to remain front-footed throughout market and economic cycles. And, uh, well, I guess we got the opportunity to test that thesis earlier than I was anticipating when the pandemic hit in March. Right.
1: You were able to raise $230 million. Do you think the majority of that capital will be used for acquisitions within the insurance industry?
0: Yeah, so we're, um, we're investing in, uh, in you know, what we call partnering, which is our nomenclature for M&A, with like-minded, very high-quality insurance businesses that uh, see the value in becoming part of a larger-scaled, entrepreneurial-led insurance enterprise, and where the collective combination of our expertise, our know-how, our people's relationships enable us to accomplish things together that we would otherwise be unable to do on our own. We, we've got a term for that, we call it BRP alchemy. And so when we're able to invest in partnering with a firm and, and they, they become our, our partners, everybody that, that joins our organization becomes a shareholder, whether you're a first time new hire or a principal in a firm that um, is partnered in and, and becomes part of BRP, every single one of our colleagues is a shareholder. So they're aligned in the value we're creating and focused on our long-term strategy of executing for our stakeholders.
1: When you and management within Baldwin Risk decided that you wanted to go down the IPO path, what was that process like? Did you have to go out and pitch Wall Street?
0: Yeah, we did. So um, we we did it pretty quickly uh, as far as IPOs go. We actually, we made the decision um, to, to uh, work towards the IPO in April of 2019, and then we, uh, we actually completed the IPO in October. Um, normally it's about an 18-month process, we did it in about six, so we immediately went out and hired some really talented professionals in the accounting and finance side, the legal side of our business to really. Um, make us IPO ready and and do so in a super short time frame um, we worked with a number of investment banks helping them put together the story that we would share with Wall Street investors so they could buy into our unique strategy because it's not the traditional public company strategy of just focusing on uh, increasing margin it's about investing in the business to deliver durable long-term double-digit organic growth, by about taking market share and about thoughtfully investing in technology platforms and resources to enable us to innovate the industry and bring unique efficiencies and effectiveness to how we interact with our clients.
1: I saw a photo of you and some of your team at the New York Stock Exchange ringing the opening bell, and I got to say, it looks super exciting. Can you describe what that experience was like to the audience?
0: I, it's a once in a lifetime thing. One, we were so we were at the Nasdaq um, marketplace right there on uh, and um, Times Square, uh, which is pretty amazing. And uh, we've brought a, over a hundred of our colleagues and their family members um, up to New York to celebrate with us that day. It was um, it was an exceptional experience. Uh, and while you know it was just um, you know, a point in time in our journey. Uh, it was an exciting one. And I think was really special for all of our colleagues, particularly those who, who have been with us since the beginning, um, to be able to experience such, such a unique thing.
1: Such an exciting moment. You mentioned the company is majority colleague owned. Is it technically an ESOP? And for those of, uh, the audience members that don't know what that is, it's an employee stock ownership plan.
0: No, we are not an ESOP. Um, because one of the benefits of being publicly traded is, you know, our, our shares they trade on the Nasdaq market um, every day, and so unlike in a traditional private company where there's restrictions on the number of shareholders you can have and requirements around, um, you know, being accredited investor status, as an example, to buy illiquid securities of that nature. As a public company, it enables us to re- reward all of our colleagues with equity ownership. So every single person that joins us is granted equity. And then all of our colleagues uh, have the opportunity to earn more equity through performance. And then, of course, anybody, including all of our colleagues, can go and buy equity uh, on uh, in the stock market.
1: Very cool. So what is it like having to comply with SEC filings and ensure transparency for the shareholders?
0: You know, um, it's definitely a a level of um, accountability that is very heightened from your traditional private company operating environment. But what I would tell you, Patrick, is it just makes us a better business because you've got to be that much more on the ball. You've got to have that much better handle on what's happening inside your business. And so um, we embrace the transparency and the accountability that being public brings. Um, we think it's good for all of our stakeholders, uh, that, that we are, um, that transparent and, and that, uh, we're sharing, um, with all of our stakeholders, uh, the successes that we're having.
1: So it's January now. We're a little bit beyond a year since you guys officially IPO'd. Thus far, have you accomplished what you set out to by going down the IPO road?
0: Yeah, you know, we really have, Patrick. Um, you know, the the goal of the IPO was to really put a stake in the ground, plant a flag saying, hey, you know, we've been saying we're building a forever company, but this is us really showing you we're gonna do it. Um, and uh, creating the capital availability and mechanisms to ensure that we can invite all of the very best firms and and talented professionals out there to join our story and our journey. Um, and you know, 2020 was a record breaking year for us. Again, uh, we had over, uh, you know, a dozen firms representing over 236 million of revenue join BRP in 2020. Um, so a pretty exceptional year the time of our ipo uh, you know what had been socialized is that you know maybe investors could expect around 100 110 million of revenue um, to join us through partnerships and we more than doubled that uh, and in addition to that through the third quarter we had 15% organic growth posting actually 20% organic growth in the third quarter when you know the industry's reeling from covid and our peers are flat to shrinking um, So I think that really validated the uh, thoughtful investments in technology and how that enabled us to remain nimble and front and center for our clients and how it enabled our colleagues to be able to be equipped to continue executing for our clients despite the fact that we had a completely new way of working in 2020. We made the decision on March 17th to send all of our colleagues home and in 24 hours, we had a hun- all of our colleagues working virtually um, without skipping a beat operationally.
1: Super impressive. And congratulations on the tremendous success that you guys have experienced. I want to transition from Thank you. the IPO to Trevor Baldwin, the CEO. And I want to confirm this because I saw it online. I wasn't sure if it was true, but I saw that you are 34 years old And I want to confirm it for the audience, Trevor Baldwin, how old are you?
0: (laughs) Well, I'm actually 35 now. I had a birthday earlier uh, in January, so, um, but uh, pretty close, I just want
1: to clarify that for our audience because um, I just think that's so impressive. Someone your age that's running a company that has over 800 employees, over 500,000 clients, uh, unicorn level valuation, can you fill us in on your journey from when you graduated Florida State University up until now?
0: Yeah, so um, I'm one of the, those few individuals who actually went and uh, majored in insurance and risk management. So I did that at Florida State. Um, you know, My family's actually been in and around the insurance industry for a few generations now. I didn't do that because I had some grand plan that I was going to build this um you know unique and and rapidly scaling insurance business i did it cuz i didn't have any better ideas what i was going <laughs> to do with my life um but then uh, i got a pretty unique opportunity coming out of college and uh went and worked in the private equity industry for a few years investing in healthcare businesses um and you know i tell people i got my real world mba doing that it was just an unbelievable experience you know being able to sit in boardrooms um with some really talented executives and see and hear how they think about the business make decisions um we i was i was there during the great recession um so also uh some great learnings of you know how to manage through really tough environment and make make difficult decisions at times um and and so was a fantastic exper- experience and then um, you know my father had started uh, a new insurance brokers business and uh, had been trying to coerce me into um, giving it a try so uh, after a few years in private equity i I said well if i 'm going to try insurance uh, now's probably the time to do it, or else i 'll never do so um, So I joined that business in late two thousand and nine and haven 't looked back since We um, spent the next year really restructuring the business my father had started and then in uh, January of 2011, we, we formed a launch one risk partners. Was there
1: any friction when you transferred from the private equity world over to the insurance world?
0: You know, not really. I mean, I, I started kind of from the ground up. So I re- I, when I came in, I, I spent most of my time out um, generating new client relationships and building a book of business. And I still have a book I manage today. I think it's super important to stay close to the clients. That's, the end of the day, what we do is provide advice and consultation to businesses and individuals around how to manage um, and finance the risk. And I think for any leader in our industry, if you find yourself too far removed from the client relationship, it's easy to lose sight of what's really important in this business.
1: I totally agree. Your resume is so strong. Is there anything that you've struggled with along the way?
0: Oh I'm I, I'm sure there's there's been plenty of struggles um you know whether it's uh decisions around talent um decisions uh around um various partnerships uh you know the the key to our success is um we I've been super fortunate to be surrounded with just an exceptionally talented group of leaders and professionals and I've been able to continually go out there and recruit and attract people that are smarter, better, more knowledgeable than I am. Um, and, and recognizing that and giving those people the ability and the authority to, to make decisions and do things and drive our business forward. So, um, you know, it's, uh, this business isn't without its challenges and hardships at times. It takes a lot of grit, um, to be successful, but, uh, know, if, if you focus on, um, finding talented people and giving them the opportunity to, to build and succeed, um, then it's hard to go wrong.
1: Are there any books that have helped guide your leadership style?
0: Yeah. Um, you know, there's a book called exponential organizations and, uh, it's a great read. Um, and it talks about a number of technology businesses and kind of how they have, innovated and and changed industries um and it talks about this philosophy and strategy of um, embracing failure and you know it's it talks about um failing often but failing forward and and what they mean by that is um through failure you curate and build your best ideas And if you set up an organization where it's okay to try new things and be wrong, so long as you can recognize when you've made that wrong decision and course correct, you're going to iterate and innovate more quickly. And so we're very focused on fostering a culture where we empower people to take risks and to try new things. And what what we hold them accountable to is failing often. And what I mean by that is, don't don't kind of try to elongate and stretch out things that aren't working. Just recognize when it isn't working and course correct, and learn from it, and iterate and iterate forward, and iterate forward. And so, rather than failure being a setback, failure is actually what propels and launches.
1: That's super cool to hear. It almost sounds like a Mark Zuckerberg line of um, "move fast and break things." Obviously, that was a bit more extreme, but. I love the book recommendation. I will definitely have to check that out. Um the next question I have is two parts. Is your dad still involved with the business and if so, do you have any advice for anyone that's running a business with family members?
0: Yeah, so my father is still involved. He's the chairman of our board and and he plays, you know, an active board role and Get involved in strategy and governance, uh, and he's also still a risk advisor with us, which is our nomenclature for producer and that's what he loves about the business is how you can develop and 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 build uh, really long lasting relationships and so he still has a book of clients that he manages and he spends his time in the business um, mentoring um, young producers you know serving as a rainmaker and and really helping. Um, our sales uh, professionals and client teams um, win new client relationships. That's what he loves to do. I was just going to say, as far as kind of any you know uh, recommendations or advice for people in family businesses, um, I'm super fortunate. Uh, my father very quickly um, was willing to um, cede authority and let me kind of make decisions uh, and chart my own path. Um, and he, he gave me a lot of leash more than enough to, uh, as they say, <laughs> hang myself. Um, but I, I, I've got to give him a ton of credit, um, because that's gotta be super tough when you're used to being kind of in control and making the decisions to seed that. Um, but he did it and, and did and embraced it. And, uh, you know, unfortunately it's worked out really well. Yeah, for no, I, I
1: really appreciate you bringing that up because I just had a, a personality expert on and he was talking about putting people in the right positions to succeed in the organization based on what they're passionate about. And it sounds like you have that dialed with your dad. So that's so cool that you guys have that relationship. If there's a kid that's graduating FSU or any other university around the country, and they're considering getting into the insurance industry, what advice do you have for them?
0: The insurance industry is the greatest industry in the world. So I would tell them that they need to get into the insurance industry. It's one of the financial world's best kept secrets. Um, the beauty of the insurance business is you are the only rate, rate limiting factor to your own success. If you're in a production role where you're focused on you know, bringing in developing client relationships, your only finite resource is your time. And, and so what I would suggest is you need to be a student of the game. You're going to win the respect and ultimately the business of your prospects by being more knowledgeable, not only about insurance, but about your client's business. And so become a student of the industries you're serving and make sure that you come with informed and thoughtful opinions so when you open your mouth, people can recognize that you know what you're talking about. And with that, age will not become a rate limiting factor. And if you're thoughtful around how you manage your time and how you partner and collaborate with peers and others inside your business, then the sky's the limit.
1: I'm 100% with you on that, Trevor. I recently read a book called The High Growth Handbook by Eli Gill. And there's a really interesting quote that I think applies uh, to our conversation here. And he said, um, the job of the CEO is not to focus on everything. The job of the CEO is to focus on the most important thing. And with that quote in mind, I'd love to know how you set out to be the most effective CEO and how you focus your energy to be as effective as you possibly can be on a day-to-day basis.
0: Yeah, so um, I-, I spend my time in a few different areas. One, we do you know, periodic, annual, quarterly kind of strategy planning and check-ins. And that's how we're kind of, you know, setting the course for the business. Um, But from an operational perspective, I have fantastic leaders from our chief operating officer all the way down who manage the day-to-day in the business. So where I spend my time is thinking about what the future of our industry is going to look like and how we can make sure that our business at BRP is going to be leapfrogging and be at the forefront of the vanguard of where the industry evolves to, pulling it forward rather than being pulled ourselves. So I spent a lot of time thinking about the future and innovation and how we can be thoughtful and aggressive about making the right investments to stay on the vanguard. I also spend my time with people. This is a people business. So building relationships, talking with folks both inside and outside of our business to hear what's working and what's not, where are we getting things right where are we missing the ball? And I spend my time out talking with potential partners and new colleagues, make sure that we're constantly keeping an eye to recruit the very best talent, to, to make sure we're positioned to welcome and be the optimal uh, home to the industry's very best firms th- that remain independent today. Because we're building an amazing entrepreneurial organization one that uh, is leveraging the power of technology and the power of people to build the very best insurance brokerage of the future.
1: I can see it. I can see it happening. And we've talked IPO. We've talked Trevor Baldwin, the CEO. And now I want to talk about company culture because I know that's an area where you're really passionate. And I know that you guys have a specific guide for employees and specific cultural standards and even lingo, and I want to make sure I'm pronouncing this correctly, but can you talk about azimuth, if that's the way you pronounce it, and how you came up with the name?
0: Yeah. So the azimuth is what I refer to as our firm's constitution. Um, and it is uh, where we outline our core values, but go much deeper than that. We, we talk about something we call our business basics, which is how we think about driving success day in, day out. So for an example, first and foremost, we're powered by people. Um, and then we we define who our stakeholders are. We've been a stakeholder-centric organization since the very beginning, well before it was popularized, popularized by the Business Roundtable and Jamie Dimon. Um, our stakeholders are our colleagues, our clients, the insurance companies we trade with and the communities we live, work and have fun in. And then, of course, our shareholders. But our view is... So long as we make decisions through the lens of what's in the best interest of those four core stakeholders, the clients, colleagues, insurers, and communities, the success of our fifth, our shareholders will follow theirs. And uh, so far, that's been abundantly true. Um, We built that document in 2011 when we founded the business. Uh, And we called it the azimuth because an azimuth is a tool on a compass used to navigate. So back before modern technology and GPSs and smartphones, if you were navigating from the old world to the new, you would have a compass with an azimuth and you would use that to shoot a course to navigate your path forward. So the azimuth being our constitution, it's how we think about staying on our true north path, which is what we, true north is what we refer to as kind of that aspirational place of success that we're always working towards and we may never fully be at, but, um, is something that, that we're constantly focused on. Um, and inside the azimuth where we, tr- you know, it, it's, it's how we bind the organization together in a tribe like man- manner through shared values and common language. So as an example, Patrick, you've referred to a number of times employees, well, we don't have employees. We have colleagues. Um, or you may hear people refer to customers. We don't have customers, we have clients. Um, we're a firm, not an agency, and we complete partnerships, not acquisitions. And while those may all be relatively small and nuanced differences, they go, we believe, a really long ways in reinforcing the level of professionalism, collegiality, and overall collaboration that we're looking to exhibit as a firm. So. The azimuth is it's the glue that binds us together Um, because you can manage culture successfully when you're 30 people in a single office by walking around and having conversations. But when you're well north of a thousand colleagues in over 75 offices across the country, you've got to have a common template for how people understand what we value, what we stand for, and what our expectations are.
1: The detailed attention to culture is awesome. And I love the historical significance behind Asmuth. Um Bringing high quality individuals into the organization seems like a huge initiative. Can you speak to your hiring process?
0: Yeah. So one, um, we have uh, in-source recruiting. So we have a dedicated team of recruiters. The most recent one, in fact that joined us came from Goldman Sachs where she was recruiting for their investment bank. So, it's not, you know, these are high caliber recruiting professionals, um, and we recruit across the gambit. Everything from um, recent college grads straight out of school that are looking to build a fantastic career in the insurance industry to experienced professionals both inside and outside our industry. We bring them in, and we uh, we do um, some personality profiling and testing. Uh, we use a system called the predictive index and we've mapped out the optimal profiles for various roles and positions in our business. And, you know, it's not, a dis- it, it, it's not the end all, but it's, it's a indicator of proclivity for success inside our organization is how I would characterize it. Um, so just because you don't, you know, match the personality profile doesn't mean you won't be successful, but people that do match it have a much higher, likelihood of being successful in a given role. So we're big believers in that, and just using data in general to inform our hiring decision uh, making and process. And then we've invested deeply in learning and development. We have a dedicated team of learning and development professionals who've built out a you know, broad-based curriculum inside our BRP University. And there's different tracks, whether you're a sales professional, a client service professional, or a part of one of our growth services teams, where you get onboarded and trained into how we do business. Because it's very different than this traditional insurance broker. Um, so when folks come from inside the industry, we've got to retrain them a lot of, in, in how we do business.
1: I'm with you all the way. I uh, internally within our own organization Evolve, we do have a very similar process with personality profiling. And I was talking to a consultant the other day and essentially it's building a more full picture of the individual. And it's not necessarily something that they can completely control. So that's so cool to hear that that's part of the process. And in terms of integrating Azimuth and the culture ideals into the day-to-day activities of the organization, How do you go about making sure that people are um, adhering to the standards that you've set?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, first of all, in any given day, it's aspirational, right? We're all human. And so um, it's an understanding that it is aspirational. And while we aspire to get it all right every day, in any given day, we're not getting everything right. But two, it's about building not only the indoctrination and training process for new colleagues who join us to get uh, indoctrinated and in, in, into the azimuth and what it means and the expectations around it, but then incorporating it to formally into how we operate and run the business. So our annual review process, you're assessed on the core values in the azimuth and how your individual behavior and decision-making is reflected relative to the core values that we espouse. Um, We have processes embedded into the day-to-day part of our business for, um, you know, embedding the azimuth. So as an example, in the azimuth, we talk about something called a BRP 2020. And any time a group of our colleagues does something for a client, for a stakeholder, um, any colleague in the business can call a 2020. So our director of first impressions could call a 2020 on me for something I did, if they felt it was appropriate. And the 2020 is to to learn from what we've done really well, so that we can identify those best practices and adopt them more broadly across our business. And it's also to reflect on what could have gone better, and how do we learn from 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 those um things that that we could have uh done better and make sure that we don't have to learn that again and so that those learnings are repeated and and communicated across the organization and that can be a little bit of an uncomfortable process for folks that are new to our business because it's um you know it, it's not meant to be negative it's 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 meant you know to be empowering and create learnings and innovation like we talked about earlier with uh, the, the perspectives from the book, Exponential Organizations. It's, a, it's about embracing the positives and, and failure so that you fail forward.
1: So there is a lot of private equity interest in the insurance industry right now. And my final question for you is, uh, why would an insurance agency want to sell to Baldwin Risk and what makes Baldwin Risk different from other acquirers in the space?
0: Yeah, so um, one, we don't view our partners selling out to us, we we view them as selling in. Uh, And there's a very important difference because uh, our partners roll a significant amount of equity into our stock. Uh, So they become, they're still owners the day after the transaction, they're just owners in a larger business alongside of us. but it, here's what I would tell you, we're, we're building the business of the future that can durably deliver double-digit organic growth well into the future. And we're looking to partner with firms that have really terrific incline industry sector expertise, product line expertise, great sales professionals, and client service uh, professionals. and. If you're an entrepreneur that sees the value in becoming part of a larger scale business with like-minded values and you wanna remain invested, if you've still got 20 years of gas left in the tank and you wanna be able to leave your imprint on the industry by being a part of building the next great brokerage firm in the US, then we're the right home for you. If you're 18 months from hitting the beach and you're looking to monetize your asset before you retire, there's 20-plus aggregators that would be happy to talk to you, but we're just not the right home.
1: Trevor Baldwin, I can't thank you enough for the insights and spending the time with me today. Um, I look forward to talking again soon, man.
0: Likewise. Thanks for having me, Patrick.
1: Thanks, Trevor. We'll talk.